Greetings, Six Centers. It's your boy, Darnell, here with a disclaimer for the episode you're about to listen to. Joel and I recorded this episode on Sunday regarding the anti-racist section of the Ontario Grade 9 math curriculum. As of Wednesday, July 15th, Doug Ford removed the section from the curriculum. So when you listen to this episode, keep that in mind. But it does make you wonder why they would remove that section. Well, if you listen, you just might find out. All right, Denzel, it's your turn. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Welcome to the Successful Part. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Uh, I'm I'm weirdly excited about this one. <laughs> I say weirdly. Why are you excited? Huh? Uh, I, I know weirdly is probably like what? Um, it's it's like my bread and butter. We're we're essentially talking about math, and and math is sort of like an inherent language for me. Call it a, a a gift from God. Well, uh, I I would say like math for me. The, the the first thing I think of math for me, I think of Super Nintendo Sega Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture this. Fifty inch screen, muddy green leather sofa. Got two rods, a limousine, and a chauffeur. Phone bill about two G's flat. No need to worry, my accountant handles that. That's what I think of math. My accountant handles that. Yeah, well, that even even more how it aligns with me. Um, <laughs> not that I'm your accountant or anything, um, but you know, for me, like I I ended up in accounting in in that realm because I was good at math. You know, I can remember back in like grade two when I was, you know, my family was <laughs> able to afford going to a private school. I was going to John Knox Christian School back in the day. That didn't last for long, but. I was uh, one of like four or five kids that when we got to the math section, I was like bumped up into like, I remember in grade two being like, oh, you're in the like advanced program or something. I don't even know. I just know that I would always go to a different room when it was time for math. I, was I going wow. to like the grade three class? I don't know. I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I just remember that like even at an early age, Probably. I was doing strong in math. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, I think about uh, shout to uh, a research uh, consultant, uh, Stefan. New style Dindile, aka the Econ Don, and uh, he used to tell me like he because he he's really good at math as well, and he said that um for him he was pushed I think by his by his grandmother and by his aunts to you know in math and he ended up doing really well in it so he he did pretty good uh, for me and I think and I think this is what this I think this is why it makes this show so great because here you are the math whiz. And you got put in advanced programs, and here I am. I got put in the ESL programs, and I'm Canadian. <laughs> right? So I, I, you know what I mean. I graduated high school with a 53 percent average. Like, so I, I wasn't even eligible to get into college. I had to apply as a, a mature student. So this is good. Look at you this now, bro. Look at you now. Look, look <laughs> at me now. Look at me now. I'm getting paid. Yeah. No, right? Well, but and, um, and, and I mean, you know it. <laughs> 
to some extent, the math sort of stuck with me too. Like, I mean, in the sense of it, it played out in so many ways that like it was to my advantage. Now, mm-hmm. was it just my, you know, my mind was inclined that way? Like I, I see myself now, like I'm very, very analytical and that sort mm-hmm. of rigor of way of thinking. Um, I want to say there's an innate component to it. Um, but it, the, the reason why I said it was, it was a blessing because you know, when I was in university, I was, people won't want to hear this to some extent, but I took math as electives because it was going to increase my GPA. Mm-hmm. Whoa. And like that, it's just, I, I get it. And, and what's really interesting is, you know, when we talk about economics, um, the school of thought being that I, you know, essentially call myself part of is Austrian economics. They are very critical of the use of mathematics. And I was taught economics using a lot of math. And I had the ability to, you know, the reason why it's criticized is because people get stuck in creating the solution and not understanding the theory. But I, for me, it just worked out well that even though I was taught very mathematically economics or taught economics in a mathematical sense, Mm-hmm. I was able to understand the theory, and I would say partly because I was so strong in math, because it, the the math piece was just like, okay, yeah, get it, boom, done. Now, what's the point? Like, why are we doing this chart? What does this graph mean? What is this solute problem that we're solving? What is the actual principle at play that these numbers are are you know demonstrating? And so it it served me well, I think, in that you know I was able to do really well in economics. But that said, I do recall my first year prof saying, generally speaking, those that did better in math did worse in economics because you only really need basic algebra to do economics or the math of economics. Mm-hmm. So I know a bit of a bit of a sidebar, but you know, I'm just giving the, the listener a little insight into to who I am and, and the math mathematical thinking that I have. Mm-hmm. Well, the joke is Mr. Fifty three percent. High school average. <laughs> I think I, I think I don't know. Maybe my math was fifty percent, but now I'm teaching kids to do math. So now, like, I'm I'm an educator teaching kids to do math. <laughs> so so that's funny. Um, so so would you professor. say on that? Like, there's an aspect of it's help. Like your let's I'll just oversimplify your your poor performance in some of those classes is making you a better educator. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm back on track now. Uh, shout out to Professor uh, Jeannie Kim. Uh, so she got me back on track. Um, and so yeah, now now I'm in a place where I'm a lot more confident in my math skills, and I'm able to see math from a failing perspective, and from the kids who struggled. So where I can honestly say that, yeah, like. I was down and out, but I'm here. And if I could do it, you could do it type of thing. So I think this will be a good conversation because because you'll get both perspectives, um, get both perspectives from Joel and I and in, in the way we're looking at uh, this curriculum. So if, we, if you didn't read the the show notes or any of the details, we're, we're talking about uh, the new math curriculum in Ontario. Uh, and so the Ontario government released the province's new elementary math curriculum. Uh, to better prepare students for work in a rapidly changing world, uh, strengthen math 
competence and improved grades. So the curriculum was developed over two years in consultation with parents, math educators, academics, and math education experts, and is designed to uh, reserve a decade uh, reverse, sorry, reverse a decade of declining math scores. It will be available to students across the province beginning in September 2020. And what's interesting about this is that the last update to the Ontario's um, to Ontario's um, elementary math curriculum was 2005. Right. Mm. So the new math curriculum is. Um, what it does is it builds the understanding of the value and uses the use of money through mount, uh, mandatory financial literacy concepts. So for the first time, uh, you could teach uh, coding or computer programming skills starting uh, in grade one to improve problem solving and fluency with technology to prepare students for jobs of the future. So you use relevant, current, and practical examples so students can connect math to everyday life. So it puts uh, put a focus on fundamental math concepts and skills, such as learning and recalling number facts. So what we're going to be doing uh, today, we're just going to be referencing uh, this article from The Conversation website, uh, The Conversation Academic Rigor Journalistic Flair. And the article is called mm -hmm. Six Changes in Ontario's Not-So-Basic New Elementary Math Curriculum. And it's by Priscilla Coria. And yeah, we'll put that in our show notes. But just, just, to, uh, just in regards to the direction Joel and I are going, uh, we're going to talk about financial literacy and the controversial section in the grade nine we're focusing yeah particularly on on the grade nine section and so we're gonna look at financial literacy we're gonna look at the um social emotional learning financial literacy and then we're looking at the principles underlying the grade nine mathematics curriculum so joel what do you think of the uh article the six uh the six changes yeah I, th I think it did a good job of like giving some high level summaries um i think you know, a couple of the categories, you know, first one, um, I thought, you know, they did a good job of, you know, talking about timetables. And I really like the, the discussion where it talks about recall and demonstrate, um, meaning it's not just memorization, but also um, understand the demonstration isn't, hey, I memorized my timetables, but demonstrating that they actually understand what the timetables are. So there's, there's stuff like that, that I thought the article did a really good job of you know, giving an understanding of what the changes were, um, you know, so really one, two, and and six are the ones we're not going to touch on too much. Um, I think for the most part, because I don't want to say there's no controversy, but um, they're more uh, structural changes as opposed to sort of content, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. At least that's the way I saw it. So, um, but in general, I thought this was a good article that, that gives a very high level of the changes. Um, because, you know, if you're trying to release, you're not going to be able to get a, a good understanding of what changed if you just pump through the, the curriculum link that, or, or some of the curriculum links that we'll provide because there's just so much content there. So I think it's a good high level summary. Um, I think it, it did bring up some things that made me want to question. Uh, and, and I think we'll jump into that shortly, but, but it, I think it highlights the things that that potentially are problematic without really, 
I want to say it, it doesn't seem to be overly positive or critical. It's just very like, here's what it is. I don't know. Did you get that impression as well? Or did it, did it seem to have, like, I, I essentially I'm saying there's a, a bit of a lack of opinion, which I think we need more of in the new, <laughs> in articles. I mm-hmm. know. Uh, no, it, it was just a simple overview. Uh, nothing too controversial, but it just, it was good to get another perspective outside of, um, the the generic flow of uh, of the of the Ontario curriculum. So what we see here, the six things that um, Priscilla pointed out was times tables. So Education Minister Stephen Lecce introduced the new math curriculum, uh, noting that memorizing times table was back. So that's good. Memorizing timetables is good. You should know your times tables. A thematic organization changes. That's point number two. So there were some changes um, to strands, big umbrella themes of how curriculum is organized. Okay, that's cool. Reorganizing curriculum. Uh, Social-emotional learning. Uh, We'll definitely get to that. Uh, Financial literacy, we'll get to that. Coding is number five. Uh, Coding and modeling. And then six earlier approaches. Mm -hmm. And and I think for six to oversimplify it, it's a bit of, you know, they're like the example they give in is some stuff's taught in grade six as opposed to seven or eight. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Okay. Um, what'd you, what'd you think of the coding and the modeling? So I, I, you know, you said something earlier that I think is, is I want to be critical of it because I'm concerned. I don't know. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my initial perceptions aren't re- totally reflective. But you're, you use the terminology in your initial summary about coding where they're like preparing for the future and, and you know, the technological influence. I want to say that that's like 20 years too late. <laughs> mm. Like if that mm. was the statement they made 20 years mm. ago about incorporating coding, I would mm. say this is very forward looking. I see that there's some accuracy there. My concern, and I'm not saying that coding mm-hmm. and modeling doesn't belong. I think it's great that they're incorporating it. My concern is that their arrogance that this is going to help people in the future because it fails to acknowledge that 20 years ago you should have made that tr- a statement as well and you failed. Not, not because they didn't see it coming or sorry not because that they saw it coming and chose not to do it but because innovation is something that you don't centrally plan these discoveries and innovations occur with if we knew that they were coming they would already be here and so my concern with the coding example to to be overly simplistic is like are they teaching the concepts of coding or are they teaching you know, a particular coding language or, or oversimplifying coding to be like, like, Hey, this is how you do a particular type of coding. And as Mm -hmm. opposed to teaching the concepts and, and my Mm -hmm. attitude, generally speaking, I always have the concern that educate, you know, our education system is teaching you what to learn, not how to learn. And so is the same thing being applied here. Are you teaching people how to understand coding? What the value of coding is, how there's nuance to coding. Are you teaching them fundamental skills that they can apply to various types of coding in very different contexts? Or 
Are you being very particular and here's what you need to learn so that you understand coding in the future? Um, that mm-hmm. to me is the arrogant statement or the, the ignorance of the future that I go back to. Hey, yeah, if this was 20 years ago, that statement makes sense because hindsight's 2020. Mm-hmm. So uh, okay. I'll say that uh, for the listener, there's a, a link I'll put in the show notes page called mathbot.com. And it's learn math by programming a robot uh, from counting to calculus. So to me, this is an example of using math and programming to sort of teach the concepts without, you know, it's, it's fun, it's enjoyable. Uh, for kids, it's it's trying to be a different method, um, and I think this version of coding is is teaching the concepts of coding. And and again, I don't know the nuance, I don't know the specifics. There's you know, the this curriculum is going to take a couple of years to sort of play out. What does that look like? Um, so I know you know I would say that my criticisms are more about concern of what is this going to look like as opposed to oh here's how they're failing. But I mm-hmm. like it in general okay. as a concept that it's included okay good 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 okay so uh and now now looking at social emotional learning the social emotional learning aspect of the math curriculum so there's there's a note in the um curriculum that says why is my child learning this and so it says so the reason why the kids are learning this is to build their social emotional learning skills such as learning to recognize and identify emotions that support mathematical learning, and then also uh, build their confidence and develop a healthy relationship with math. What do you think about that, Joel? So my, when I see this, my first instinct is emotional intelligence. Or mm-hmm. um, there's like emotional quotient EQ. Remember back when we had um, Joseph Smith? Dr. Joseph Smith, um, way back. Obviously, I want to say Joseph season Smith, one. Yeah. Season one? So like, mm-hmm. or maybe season two? I'm not, I'm not sure. Or, yeah, I'll season one it. for sure. Mm-hmm. He was talking about this is what his and his generation chosen. They're, part of what they do, right, is, is teaching kids how to recognize their, rise their emotions and, and respond to them. So that aspect of the school system, of education, I think is important. I find it slightly peculiar that it's part of the math curriculum. Not to say, like, I I would agree that I think this skill has some nuance, uh, and I can get into it in a bit. But oh yeah, but sorry, uh, I just want to add. I just wanted to add. uh, Yeah, so that was episode twenty-seven you're referencing, "Real Solutions to Gun Violence" with Dr. Joseph Smith. Um, thanks. Yeah, and and so with this, I think there's some nuance where math might present uh, good opportunities to apply. Um, what's the terminology again? Uh, emotion, social, emotional learning. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, emotional intelligence, EQ, uh, you know, social skills are, I think are sort of a derivative of that. If you recognize your own emotions, you start to be able to recognize that in other people and, and there's some reciprocal there. So I think the concept is important. I think it's important to be in the education. I find it very, very peculiar that it's in the math curriculum as opposed to, um, let's say, an application of this concept for the teachers while teaching math. 
Now that might sound a little bit funky, mm-hmm. um, and I'll, I'll unpack it in a second. But I wanted to to understand for you, like, what's your thoughts on this? Do you, you know, and I would say in general, with your experience in the classroom teaching, where what do you find uh, valuable, or where do you find social emotional sort of learning, or or the concepts that they have written here being applied? Yeah, no, uh, this is man. I wish I had this when I was a kid, man. Uh, our my form of a social emotional learning was um, what my mom would call hot licks. <laughs> that was it. That was it. You just got beating if you got the question wrong, and the more oh. the more you cried, and the more you acted up, she said, "Yeah, I'll give you something to cry about." This situation would just escalate. So, <laughs> so you know, praise God for social emotional learning in math. That's the first thing that comes to my head. I'm like, oh man. Maybe maybe this would have changed my life, um, but maybe yeah, your mom's. I, I use to learn I, about I this. use this. Yeah, 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 yo. <laughs> but I, but I, I I use it a lot. I use it a lot in class um, because you know, you know, you're you know, I'm constantly having to coach kids through the frustrations of doing math and 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 sympathizing, empathizing with them, putting my foot and putting my feet in their their shoes and and consoling them and and building up their self-esteem so yeah this is this is everyday stuff it's practical it works um and i actually enjoy it so it's cool okay so let, let me unpack sort of my criticism a little bit more for so it said you know the article that we were, were from the conversation that we're in the first sentence or first paragraph about this section it says both math and the health and physical education new curricula now teach social emotional learning so um I my point is that I think it's weird that it's taught in math. I think it makes sense to be applied in math and and the second paragraph they sort of identify why I would agree and that is considering the feelings students may encounter when doing mathematics such as confusion, frustration, anxiety, anger, hopelessness among others addressing social emotional skills is crucial. So I when I think about math in contrast with other classes or or subjects because math is is generally so objective meaning you have a right answer or a wrong answer it when you have the wrong answer there's no like oh like think about spelling okay i got one letter wrong i got most of the word right but i got one letter wrong you know if you remember the answer keys for your math textbook or your math no you know questions you don't even know where you went wrong a lot of, unless you have a really complex answer key that gives you all the details of how they get the answer, which most of the time that's not there. Most of the time it's just answer question 3B is 45. And you're like, I got 42. Uh-oh. So that sort of like abrupt I'm wrong and not knowing where, why, and how, um, I can understand where in math it is frustrating. It is you know, going to cause you to get angry or, or, you know, confused. And I would say I can recall doing like university math classes and like, yeah, for sure. Being like pulling on my hair, like, oh my goodness, why can't I get this? doesn't make any sense. And like over and over again, trying to figure out the problem. And then, you know, having a sense of accomplishment when I got through it, I think, you know, for my own, um, my own sake, I, I when I succeeded, it, it, because I had so much success in math, those moments of failure or struggling, I was okay with. But if you have that failure early on, 
needing the skills to regulate and manage your emotions, I think is very important. So to, to reiterate my point, I think there's a really good application of this social emotional learning in the math class. I just find it peculiar that it's part of the curriculum. That just seems, you know, maybe it's from my ignorance of, of the curriculums, but I think to me, having the social emotional learning sort of, let's call it curriculum that you're teaching through health and physical education, or let's think of like elementary school classes, part of your like core teacher class, that makes more sense to me that, and then you apply during this context or be prepared as a teacher to apply those skills that you've been teaching. Um, I just don't think math is the, <laughs> the context that you should be teaching these skills, I guess is really, or, or that's where my concern lies, that the that math class <laughs> is where you teach these skills. It just, yeah, it seems peculiar. <laughs> so I think, you know, as you described, if you had had those skills, you know, you would have potentially maybe fought through your struggles in math better. Like, would you, would you agree with that? Would you say that that's um, what you were saying that when you said, oh, I wish I had this. Is that sort of what you mean? That like when you were struggling? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to my point. Okay. Now I'm going to get to my point. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to okay. get to my point. But no, that, that wouldn't help me. Okay. Cool. All right. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So let's jump to uh, point two. Right. About uh, the financial literacy and why is my child learning this? So basically, the reason why uh, students are learning this financial literacy portion is that they're um, to build their financial literacy by learning to manage finances, such as working with budgets and understanding uh, appreciation and depreciation of assets, and now analyze uh, various financial situations and learn how math can be applied to make informed decisions. For example, understanding shifts in the stock market. Examine how interest rates, down payments, and other factors impact purchasing decisions. So I think uh, my first instinct is to go back to the, uh, you know, you po we, we posted on uh, our uh, Facebook page a, a while back, you know, about uh, there was an article from Narcity uh, called Ontario will now teach students how to apply for a mortgage and pay off debt in grade nine. Um, and my, my quick witted response to your, you know, to the post that we put out there was, I don't think uh, our government is qualified to teach students about managing debt. <laughs> and I, I mean, as much as I'm being, you know, silly okay. and witty, okay. I, I think the point is that, you know, our government just accumulates debt. They live on debt. And I would say taking, there, there's an appropriate use of debt and there's a bad use of debt. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, my concern is that they, they really don't differentiate the two. While they'll teach you how to understand debt and financial calculations, let's say, um, you know, like in, as you as you put it, um, you know it's going to help examine decisions, right? I think you made stock market change, right? So using the finance, let's say math or mathematical finance, being able to apply it is one thing, but 
what are good and bad decisions are, are a whole different thing. And that's where I would say I don't trust the government or I don't, uh, I don't think the government's going to be teaching in a, in a positive manner uh, about debt or, or let's say when to be weary of debt. What is your, what's your initial take on, on the financial literacy? Uh, I think from a, well, I'm, from a person that's coming from a place of financial illiteracy, I got myself into a lot of trouble uh, in my early years financially because I wasn't um, literate. I didn't, I didn't know uh, how to manage my money or finances or understand financial terminology. And now I'm at a place where I am learning it and I'm being empowered. And so now when I, when I hear people talk about financial literacy, uh, I'm kind of skeptical about it because like what I'm learning is that um, financial literacy isn't about necessarily about your IQ, but it's about your EQ, your, your, mm. your emotional intelligence. Um, and so one of the books that was helpful for me in, in kind of changing my life, like almost, I don't want to, I hope I'm not exaggerating if I use this word. Um, I've been regenerated. This is heresy. This is my third conversion. <laughs> this is the, so. This is this is this is this is like my third conversion. Um, people are like third conversion. You mean second? No, I mean third. My second conversion was me becoming reformed. But that's a whole other conversation. So, <laughs> so um, the book I, I was reading was um, why A students work for C students and B students work for the government by Robert Kiyosaki, uh, the author of. Rich, dad, uh, rich poor. dad, poor dad. And actually, I got... Pardon? I said rich dad, poor dad. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Rich dad, poor dad. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, actually, I, I got this book from uh, referenced from this guy named King Randall. Uh, you can follow King Randall on Twitter at New Emerging King. And so, basically, he's this young black guy in Atlanta in his 20s. Uh, basically, took these young... Um, brothers from his community under his wing they basically were flunking out of school and they had no future and he basically took them under the ring his wing and started just mentoring them and teaching them and uh you know he he actually he read this book and he got his stuff together financially and he got some money together and bought um, um a vacant school and he opened up his own school and he's you know um teaching these guys life skills and how to um you know how to survive, how to be financially literate, and, and and even just practical. So so that kind of inspired me. He said, "I read it. He didn't put it down, and it changed his life." I read it, finished it, like in about two days. Didn't put it down and changed my life. But anyways, uh, so after reading that, I was kind of like, okay, well, what is financial literacy, and what do we mean by um, emotional intelligence and and intellectual intelligence? So for example, like just 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 very basic. There are, here's 10 things that you can do. Um, some of it is intellectual, but some of it is um, emotional intelligence that can um, build your financial wealth. So one, be an entrepreneur, uh, own your own business. Okay, fine, simple. Two, build a team of advisors, attorneys, accountants, and other entrepreneurs. That's emotional intelligence. Understand how to use debt. Okay, that's intellectual. Four, understand tax laws. Okay, that's intellectual. Five, develop high emotional intelligence. 
Six, set high standards for legal, ethical, and moral character and practices. Right? Mm -hmm. That is emotional. Right? Seven, be a real estate investor, intellectual. Uh, Nine, dedicate time to financial education and putting what you learn to work. That's emotional. And then 10, uh, develop strong communication and people skills. That's emotional. Mm. Right? And so the, the point I'm making is that, um, you know, financial literacy is something that is a lifestyle, right? It isn't just something that, you know, you study, but it's actually a way how you live. Albert Einstein puts, said this, education is what remains after one has forgotten what one has learned in school, right? So meaning financial literacy, like I said, is a lifestyle. So, so it, 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 if you like drip or, or like looking fresh to death, Right, then that's going to become a hindrance to your financial literacy if you're always trying to get the new new Jordans, or um, you know, just always trying to level up and floss and and you know, pop your collar in front of your friends. Right. So, um, living in a free country means you have the freedom to choose to be rich, poor, or middle class. But I think that choice starts at home and outside of school. What about you? Um, yeah, I think, you know, when you first said about it being emotional or emotional intelligence, the thought that came to mind is, um, two things. Have you ever heard, you know, the concept of FOMO, fear of missing out, but also MOFO, (laughs) MOFO, what's MOFO? (laughs) I said FOMO, fear of missing out. Oh, I think it's Oh, never mind. Never mind. This is a kid's show. This is a kid. This is a Christian show. Yeah, yeah. Mofo is a whole different conversation. Um, so with the reason why FOMO is relevant is, you know, to make money in let's say the stock market, you buy low and sell high. But generally speaking, people buy high and sell low because of FOMO, right? So when everyone's you know hyped up about an asset, that's when you're buying. That's your emotions driving you to make a purchase. And I'm using stocks Mm -hmm. as an example. And then when the market crashes Mm -hmm. out of your fear, you turn around and sell. Um, You know, the the statement that I hear from uh, some investor people that I sort of follow is trade the plan. And, And the reason that sort of applies here is because you need to recognize when your emotions are driving your decisions. And if your emotions are driving your decisions, I know this isn't really what you were talking about, but if your emotions are driving your decisions, a lot of times you're going to potentially ignore the, uh, the, the financial components as you went through that list. Oh, that one's financial. Mm-hmm. Oh, that one's financial, right? So there's a combination of the two mm-hmm. and, and your emotional uh, intelligence plays a role in the relationships and networks that you're building in order to make uh, wise investments. But there's also an aspect of recognizing mm-hmm. your emotional responses that is so important to making wise decision making. Because I was just gonna say the worst thing you can do is is you know make a decision under pressure. It's like me with so a perfect example for me. I just I had a, a minor car. Well, had a we got rear-ended in my car, and the amount of damage oh, yeah, was I saw that. just under the amount that would needed to write off my car. The last thing I wanted them to do is write off my car. Because when I buy a car, I want to spend 
lots of time, taking my time, finding my options, figure out, okay, what's value for my money? What do I really want? What, what am I willing to sacrifice? What do I need? And find the right option. If I had to write my vehicle off, I'd have to buy a car in a week and I'm pretty much going to not be happy with my purchase because I'm making a decision under the mm-hmm. confined, stressed time constraint. So while that's a little bit less about emotions, mm-hmm. it's still, I lack the capacity to make a wise decision and do all of the things that I want to do. And that's it, where it relates is when you're high stressed, emotional, you know, that's, that's a similarity when you're, you're forced into making a decision tomorrow because you're, you, mm-hmm. because you're acting yeah. quickly. You, you, you know, your, your chance of either being rash or not making the, the best decision if you had taken more time. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got this new book called The Intelligent Investor, the definitive book on value investing by Benjamin Graham. And then the preface and appendix is by uh, Warren Buffett. So I've been working my way through that and trying to um, better, again, trying to uh, grow my knowledge in financial literacy. And even like one of the simple things that that was helpful for me in, in thinking these things through was that looking at me as a person and the way how I think. And uh, I like to have control over things. I don't I don't really like to leave things up to chance. I always like to be in control of certain of of things. So when it came to like investments and everybody riding the Bitcoin wave, not to say that it's wrong. Um just me emotionally, there was always something I felt uncomfortable about. Um in 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 going into and I always thought it was intellectual, but when I finally understood what it was for me, not um not speaking against it. I'm just saying for me, I I would prefer investments that i had um more um control over because that's how emotionally i was wired um so just real quick just if you guys well, are would you agree train of thoughts so i just want to ask you quickly would you agree that the control mm-hmm. relates to the fact of understanding like with bitcoin i would say a um, lot of people don't understand the technology they don't understand really what they're investing in in a contrast to like a company on uh, no, 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 um, not necessarily that. Yes, you have a point. Um, but m- for me, it was just more so um, having something in my hand. Like the investment I want is something I can hold in my hand. Where, where I don't like things being out of my control. If I can have control, like for example, when I used to play sports, um, I don't like not being the leader. <laughs> I don't like I want the ball in my hands at the end of the game. You know what I mean? Like that's I don't like I don't I don't want people to have my fate in their hands. So if I can have as much control as possible, then I'm going to fight to uh gain that control. I'd rather die by my own sword than somebody else's if the, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh th- so this so just there's so there's three um types of um income right? That um, Kiyosaki talks about. He talks about uh, ordinary income, portfolio income, and passive income. And, you know, the portfolio income is more so aligned with stocks. And then uh, the passive income has to do more with uh, income generating real estate. And then the ordinary, pardon? Income generating, but yes, real estate's the most common. 
Yeah. And then, and then, uh, ordinary income, what we do with our, with our nine to five. So, so the ordinary income is earned income, uh, portfolio income is capital gains income, and then passive income is, uh, cash flow income. And just for me, um, I just, I realized that me emotionally, uh, where I was at, I, w- I felt more comfortable with something that I can, um, possibly put, put, put my hands on. And, yeah, and, and that's all. That's all I was just saying in regards to financial literacy. So when I'm looking at the school curriculum and seeing how that goes, I think that, yeah, it, it has to, it, it's a lot deeper than just knowing what to do, but it's a lifestyle that you have to learn um, in your home, right? Mm-hmm. Rich people teach their kids how to be rich. And, it's, and I tweeted this the other day. Um, it's a responsibility. I no longer believe that, that, um, that generational wealth is easy. I don't believe that anymore of where I'm at today. Meaning that um, when it comes to generational wealth, um, it's a responsibility, right? It's a huge responsibility to manage that money and to understand how to maintain that wealth. So for the person who worked hard to attain it, now you're going to pass it on, but your kid's a loser. If you well, don't you know, like, like well, pardon? If you don't educate them. Sorry? If you don't educate, them. uh, well, not well, but no, okay, well, well, no, 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 I, I, well, no, actually, I, I would kind of disagree with that, okay. um, because, um, there's a point where the person who's going to inherit it doesn't want to. They don't want to inherit the wealth, and I remember Shaquille O'Neal said this to his son. He's like, "Yo, um, you got to have three degrees to touch my cheese." <laughs> You got to have three degrees to touch my cheese. And you're like, what the fray? Like, like three degrees, dad, like, geez, like, why can't I just inherit it and chill? Um, I saw a a meme with Jackie Chan. Mm -hmm. Jackie Chan is not passing his money down to his kid, right? He's like, no, well, well, he can earn his own money. Mm. Like, this is mine, right? So, 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 so there, there's points where, you know, and even just this, this happens in my own home. Because, you know, I've been having this conversation with my, with, my, with my family. And, you know, there's people in my family who are saying like, yo, I don't want to inherit that wealth. My own blood, people in my family saying like, yo, actually, you know what, Darnell, on the low, I don't even want to inherit that wealth. And I would say, well, why not? Because it's work. It's too much work to do that. I'd rather not inherit it. So the point I'm making is just that general that wealth is not easy, and anybody that talks about oh, um, you know, wealth is easy doesn't know what they're talking about, and they're financially illiterate. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. No. No. That's I think that's a fair point, and and but I yeah. think financial illiteracy is something that I think you you sort of touched this earlier, but like most people don't realize how illiterate they are when it comes to finance. Um, you know, the example that until, until you get calls from collectors and then they're well, garnishing your wages. Well, and, and, but even that, like the, I guarantee you, those people aren't realizing the reason they're in that situation is because they're financially illiterate. They think it's because they have, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether, whatever the reason, right. Uh, I ran into some bad luck or, or the system. Yeah. The system's holding the system. me down or, or, you know, I don't make enough money. Right, they're they're not going. Oh, it's because of my financial yeah. literacy. It's because I made some bad decisions. And and to me, the the best example I think. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. hope you know for the listener, um, if this applies to you, 
you know, uh, feel free to reach out to me and I can explain why it, it doesn't quite work this way. But so I had a, uh, a car a sales agent, <laughs> a car salesman tell me that the vast majority of people will take 0% financing all the time. And, and, and sometimes it's not, a, it, it, the numbers, if you understood finances, if you knew the, how things worked and you ran the numbers, you would be like, so let me give you the example. Let's, I'll just make them up. I don't, because I'm not giving all the variables. I can't say which scenario totally works out as, as better. But if I had a $30,000 car and I'd give you $2,000 off, but you had 0.9% interest or you pay the full 30 and 0% interest. Again, depends on the time frame, number of years and, and uh, payment schedules and all that stuff to, to figure out which one of the two is better. But the, the car salesman was like, everybody picks 0% interest because they just default. Oh, well, zero is better than 1%. But it's 28,000 at 1% and 30,000 at 0%. At some point, like there's a, there's a time factor that makes one of them better than the other. But it's financial literacy that just causes people to go, well, zero is better than one in terms of interest rate. So, um, you know, this is where yeah. I thought that hopefully what the, what the system is trying to do, what the program is trying to do as they summarized it, you know, the objective, uh, I think is, as you know, when you were describing it, Darnell, the, the, the line or the way that I remember it was, you know, that it will provide the ability to examine how interest rates, down payments, and other factors will impact decisions, right? So that is where I think financial literacy is is definitely lacking, uh, and and I'm hoping uh, that that this <laughs> these changes will help in that regard to be able to say, oh, when is the zero percent interest versus cash back up front a better option, as opposed to you know illiteracy just going zero percent is better. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so now the the last part we're looking at we're looking at the principles underlying the grade nine mathematics curriculum. Now there's various principles, but there was one principle that caught a lot of people's eye, mm. <laughs> and that's been trending on social media, Twitter. Uh, okay, so this is an equitable mathematics curriculum recognizes that mathematics can be subjective. Mathematics is often positioned as an objective and pure discipline. However, the content and the context in which it is taught, the mathematics who are celebrated, oh, sorry, the mathematicians who are celebrated, and the importance that is placed upon mathematics by society are subjective. Mathematics has been used to normalize racism and marginalization of non-Eurocentric mathematical knowledges and a decolonial, anti-racist approach to mathematics education makes visible its historical roots and social uh, constructions. The Ontario Grade 9 Mathematics Curriculum emphasizes the need to recognize and challenge systems of power and privilege, both inside and outside the classroom, in order to eliminate systemic barriers and to serve students belonging to groups that have been historically disadvantaged and underserved in mathematics education. How's that word salad? Okay, well, Mr. Mathematician, what do you what do you what do you think? Well, I mean, I earlier already mentioned math is objective. And and clearly this 
statement is, you know, saying no, it's subjective. So I think um, it's important to recognize that I think there's there's a lot of, you know, there's some truths in here that I'm not, you know, perfect example, right? The, let's take the last part saying there are students belonging to groups that have been historically disadvantaged and underserved in mathematics education. That can be true while denying that math is subjective and that the lack of recognizing it's subjective is the cause. So the point I'm trying to get at is by, by attacking or criticizing this, you know, principle that they're trying to apply, I'm not necessarily saying some of the other things in this paragraph uh, are or aren't true. So let, let's use um, the, the punchline that I love to make about stats. Stats don't lie, but liars use stats. This is being conflated in this statement. So the first part, stats don't lie, is that stats are objective. Mathematics is objective. It is the application of numbers and data, i.e. liars use stats, is the application of numbers, mathematics, that has a subjective nature to it because you're taking objective things and drawing derivatives or principles or concepts or conclusions from that. And that is where the subjective nature can occur. But technically, that's not math. That's not math that is subjective. Yeah. And I, I, I think I could be wrong. The example that they say math has been used to normalize racism. I think uh, most people have has heard about or, or is familiar with the idea that um, there are racial disparities when it comes to IQ testing. So I would argue that is an objective data point. For argument's sake, uh, let's say that the IQ tests are relatively reliable and you know there's no no concern there. I just want to park that for, for argument's sake. Someone who draws a conclusion that because a particular minority group has an average lower IQ is somehow less than or a you know a, a lower um, race or or whatever, you know let's say racial position they want to derive from that that is not you know mathematics that is somebody having a using data to argue a point but why does a lower iq inherently mean that the race is inferior or any sort of you know racial similar claim or or i should say um derogatory racial claim it doesn't mm -hmm. the, and this is the problem they're not separating false or bad uses of data or bad conclusions that are subjective from the objective science. And and so the point, the other, you know, the the for me, it's go back to what we talk about with the concern about the anti-racist approach. The anti-racist approach is about equal outcome. And now maybe some people would say that's an oversimplification. Fine. But when it comes to math, when they're talking about un mathematics being unequitable the whole point is that the different races are score some races are scoring poorly and other than more poorly than others it sounds like the solution they're proposing is to address the subjective nature of math not to address 
what are the underlying issues that may result in uh, the very last sentence? Students belonging to groups that have been historically disadvantaged and underserved, right? What is, is there, um, you know, problem solving examples that, um, let's say, students with English as a second language aren't served properly because the problems, you know, the, the word examples uh, don't work for them. And so therefore they're going to learn more slowly because of the language issue that they're, you know, they're going to ESL class as you just, as you got put into. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and these are just questions that I'm posing to say, like, that's a fair question, but that has nothing to do with objective or subjective. That has to do with the method that it's being teached and as opposed to the actual content itself being subjective. Um, the only other thing I did want to say is that, you know, there, may, there, there is an aspect where, you know, this sentence where here it's saying that the mathematicians who are celebrated and the importance placed on mathematics in society is subjective. Is there some truth there? Is there room for criticism that you know maybe, like I, the the thought that came to mind when I was when you were reading this is, remember the movie The Hidden Figures? Yeah, yeah, right. Like, is that an example where you know society did certain things that that now we look back and go, hey, these were prominent, you know, black women who were basically not given enough recognition, right? But that doesn't have to now. The second part here where it says mathematics by society is subjective, that that one I think is is a bit squirrely. I have a bit of concern there. And and because I think, are you gonna say that we should not consider being strong in math as important as historically? I don't know if that's a good approach. Is that actually going to lead to more human flourishing? Now, obviously, maybe that's not the point, maybe that's not the claim. But the importance placed upon mathematics by society. I would suggest that, you know, that's a skill that we don't want to undervalue. And that's sort of my concern with the terminology, that you would start to diminish the value because, oh, guess what? When we count the math scores less and we increase the value of other scores, now, you know, we made the outcomes more equal. But all you did was just play games with numbers. So um, I know I went on my little tirade about you know math being objective what's what's your concern or where do you think maybe i went wrong in in my cheek uh, well no it's warranted it's warranted it was helpful um what, what you said was warranted uh i definitely um the part about uh the mathematicians uh, that you pointed out was was interesting it made me think of um theologians in Christianity, in the church, I think I think it's I think it's kind of the same argument against, uh, yeah, against the. Uh, it, but it happens in the church actually that, that that same argument. So so it's kind of familiar to see that. But I, I would say just in general um, that the burden of proof is on um, is on the curriculum and and the people who put it together. On how that's going to be done, because I'm just thinking like, okay, well, okay, how, how sway, <laughs> right, right, how, how Joel, like, um, I'm, I'm curious to how, um, would I do a lesson plan to, to, um, to do this? So, for example, um, 
sentence that says, um, uh, mathematics has been used to normalize racism and marginalization of non-Eurocentric mathematical knowledges and the decolonial anti-racist approach to mathematics education makes visible its historical roots in social constructions. How? Right? So they pointed that out, but how? Like, 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 like yeah, how, what, what is how, the thing they're addressing? Is that sort of the question you're asking? Yeah, like how, how are you, you know, how, how would you address that? Um, and then the other part was the Ontario grade nine uh, mathematics curriculum emphasizes the need to recognize and challenge systems of power and privilege, both inside and outside the classroom in order to eliminate systemic barriers and to serve students belonging to groups that have been historically disadvantaged and underserved in mathematics education how Mm -hmm. like how how is that going to be done and so it and that's why i focused on the second part of that sentence because like i was sort of saying okay that might be true but i don't see how so that again students belonging to groups that have historically been disadvantaged and underserved in mathematics the first part of the sentence in my opinion tell me if i'm wrong is basically assuming well this is due to racism powers and privilege and and I think your question of like, well, how are you address, addressing this by just calling it systemic barriers, systemic racism, systemic, you know, power and privilege concepts? Like, am I wrong? Is that what you're sort of saying? Like, how is that actually going to do something, or how is that going to change something? Uh, well, no, 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 that's not what I was saying. Um, not not more so like, how am I going to teach this? So like, mm. like what are, what are the um what are the lines of continuity? Um, that you're going to draw to to do this. So they're, they're acknowledging it. And that's the point I was making was that um, it sounds like kind of that idea of uh, blue, the blue sky, right? Uh, this is what salesmen or saleswomen uh, call the blue sky, um, saying anything to make a sale. Like this stuff sounds great and it sounds um, current, sounds woke. Yeah, it fits the narrative. Yeah, but but and my question is how like, um, and and how how is that going to be done? And then of course like the, the previous part that I just pointed out, um, the part about um, context, right? However, the content and the context in which it is taught, the mathemat the mathematicians who are celebrated, and the importance that is placed upon mathematics by society are subjective, and. That's to me, that's worrisome in that um yeah, it 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 conflates the the definition of what objectivity actually is in subjectivity. But of course that that's you're gonna lose that if you're coming from a postmodern perspective and and everything is relative and you don't and you don't have a context for what's objectively true, right? So for example, content using the same thing, content and context, right? Content is key, but context is king. And so it's important to make sure that both aspects, just like, and I, and I use the, the you, you, I said theologians, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Mathematicians, um, right? I think about theologians and, you know, there are theologians who are, who've done things wrong and who've, um, who, yeah, who have sketchy pasts or are sinners, and they're just sinners because that's how they are. But there are true things that have been said. 
Same thing with Christians when we look at unbelievers. Unbelievers can speak truth. Unbelievers can do good things, even though they're sinners. Um, so, uh, so you don't want to rule out um, something because of the origin where it comes from, right? That's to commit mm-hmm. the genetic fallacy, mm-hmm. right? Something is something is flawed because of where it comes from, right? Um, Romans fourteen the, the fourteen. Math, the mathematician was a slave owner, therefore his conclusions are racist. Yeah, yeah. Um, Romans fourteen fourteen. Uh, nothing is evil in and of itself, and and so. We don't want to commit the genetic fallacy and, and, and basically write something off because of the origin of where it comes from, right? We always look at the outcome and what it produces, um, and we judge things based on the outcome. So we do the math, right? One plus one equals two, right? So we do the math to make sure everything adds up and it's right, right? We don't, we don't say, well, Joel said one plus one is two so it's wrong because joel is a racist so right we don't we don't we do we we do the math Mm -hmm. right we don't just write it off because of the person who told us one plus one equals two yeah but what's your whole two cents on this issue man uh i mean i i want to want to start by by quoting john taylor gatto and you know if if people don't know who he is, essentially, I'll just read. A, I think it's from his Wikipedia, but it's, when I see it in Google, I'll have a link to uh, his like about me in uh, on his website. But John Taylor Gatto was a, a American author and school teacher. After teaching for nearly thirty years, he authored several books on education, criticizing its ideology, history, and consequences. So there's two quotes. The first uh, is is a. Sh- I'll put a, a video in the in the link saying why public schools and mainstream media dumb us down. Um, so this is where I, I'm stealing the quotes from, uh, but but they're his quotes from two of his books. So it's, I'm only stealing a really short piece, but from his book "Dumbing Us Down" by John Taylor Gatto, he says schools are intended to produce formulaic human beings whose pre- behavior can be predicted and controlled. The second quote. Uh, is from his book Weapons of Mass Instruction <laughs> and it says what shocks is that we should so eagerly have adopted one of the very worst aspects of Prussian culture an education system that de- it deliberately designed to produce mediocre intellects to hamstring the inner life to deny students the appreciable leadership skills and to ensure docile and incomplete citizens, all in order to render the populace manageable. And, and the reason I wanted to read those is we're adding this financial literacy, this math you know, needs to a system that, that this is a teacher who's been in the system for 30 years criticizing the system. And it's to recognize that the inherent structure of the school system is, in my opinion, as I've just stated, it's not to teach people how to learn. It's to teach people what to learn or to teach them what we want them to know. And all of these things, you know, I think the, the as you described it, the, the math wokeness, I think, or, or the wokeness of this equitable mathematics point or, or the subjective nature of mathematics is an example of 
they're embedding. They want to teach people about the systems of power and privilege. They want to teach people about how society has normalized racism and marginalized non-Eurocentric mathematical knowledge. Right? They, that is, they're embedding that into the curriculum because that's what they want to teach. As you sort of pointed out, okay, like how? Because it doesn't matter how. It, it's about this is the content they want to teach. So my, you know, my overly critical perspective of this is I have huge concerns that government in their arrogance is going to teach coding in a way that doesn't actually prepare for the future. That, you know, this mathematical components to the curriculum, again, is still the same problem. It's teaching what to learn, not how to learn. I know that's a, maybe an oversimplification. Um, no, 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 it's not. It's not. But it's good. I, I do think some of the changes they're they're making are valuable. I think, you know, having social, social emotional learning in the school system as part of education is important. Um, but I, I, again, I just don't trust government to be the method to deliver this in a way that puts human flourishing first. Um, I would argue government bodies, bureaucrats, primary focus uh, is is about maintaining control and power. And and we essentially, you know, without going down the rabbit hole, we're sort of getting into the conversation about public choice economics. So for you, Darnell, what do you, what do you want to leave the listener with? What do you think uh, they can learn about or, or should understand about the changes to the math curriculum uh, and, and maybe what, what, what they're should be concerned about or, or what they should be uh, encouraged of. Yeah. So I would say that uh, it reminds me of something that uh, the late R.C. Sproul uh, said and that uh, there's no such thing as a neutral education. There's no such thing as a neutral education. So all curriculums are geared towards producing a particular outcome, a particular kind of person. So as a parent, you have to ask uh, your child's school teacher or the superintendent, principal, um, what kind of person um, do you plan to make my child to be? Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. What kind of person you make, do you want my child to be? Are you, are you, are you geared to trying to do? Because uh, all curriculum works backwards, right? You start with the end in mind, and then the curriculum will work backwards to create that outcome. Right. So for you as a parent, you kind of have to have in your mind, like, okay, this is the plan. My plan is X for my kid, but you want Y for my kid. So you're, you're in conflict there. Now, if your school wants Y, you want Y, then, then, then it's cool. But, but, but I I think when it comes to um, financial literacy, I think um, it's the same education. uh, I mean, Education is the same whether you're doing math, you're doing English, or you're learning to play quarterback, right? It's the same thing. So if my goal, because people might follow the, the, the sports analogy, so if, or basketball, we use basketball. If my goal is to um, get my kid to, to the NBA, then... Um, <laughs> Relying on the gym teacher to teach basketball <laughs> in gym class is not, not going 
is well every hooper anybody that does sports already knows like look man we're trying to get you to the league you know um so we're not we can't rely on the gym teacher in the gym curriculum nobody says hey yo we need to revive the gym curriculum so that it can get you know more players to the league no nobody says that because that doesn't make sense the onus is on the parent um same thing with financial literacy and, and i'm sure those parents who have you know a lot of money saved up and have financial plans and 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 have wealth already they're, they're they're not asking they're not saying oh we should get the school to teach our kids to be financially literate those parents don't say things like that mm-hmm. just like parents who are trying to get their kids to the league they don't say hey we need to get the gym teacher to learn more about how to play triple threat and score off of two dribbles and you know pull up from the logo no no th- those right? are the those <laughs> that's are the, not that's not parents. how it works they, they put their kid in the boarding school where gym class is that sport yeah 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 right so 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 and, and and that's just something to think about like the parents who are financially literate don't say things like that usually it's the ones who aren't financially literate who, who say that right because at the end of the day um it's all competition right our our economy is competition uh school is still competition right um the people you're sitting beside are still your competitors for jobs and future things like that so you have to remember that educate the point my my point i'm making is that education um is not neutral um and it's not fair but that's the essence of education because you you got to kind of give yourself um an advantage to over your peers right mm-hmm. uh now there's a quote um there's a quote uh from theodore uh dalrymple uh, he's an um, English cultural critic and prison phys- physician and psychiatrist. And he said this, To overturn a prejudice is not to destroy prejudice, but to replace it with another prejudice. Hmm. Right? And so there's no such thing as a neutral education. So as it relates to financial literacy, I believe it starts at home and ends at home. A school may teach your child for a semester, or a year, but a parent is a teacher for life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let us know what you guys think. Um, were were we fair? Did we miss anything? Um, would you like us to do a follow up episode? Uh, you can contact us at six cents report at gmail.com. If you're trying to get in touch with Joel, what do you got to do? Uh, T Joel N39 everywhere Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You want to see my content? Mostly Instagram is Instagram stories is sort of what I've been reverting <laughs> to. I, I'm sort of off Facebook as much as I can. I, I'm I used to be pretty heavy in Facebook, but um, Instagram stories is sort of the easy option for me now. Uh, try to try to limit my social media time, you know. Okay. Okay. Cool. 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 Um. Yeah. And you can uh, reach me uh on Twitter or Instagram. Do good a Darnell, D-O-G-U-D-D-A underscore Darnell or Darnell Samuels on Facebook. And uh, yeah, give us your two cents. Tell us what we did right, what we did wrong. Like, share, comment, you know, give us a rating on on your podcast catcher, Uh, whatever you can do. Give us a review. Whatever you can do that that sort of uh, helps us grow grow our audience. Uh, We appreciate it. So six cents makes change. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.